should say. Oh, yeah. so, yeah. so, yeah. 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 uh, tēnā koutou katoa, ngā mahi nui ki a koutou, uh, he hōneri, he kororia ki te atawa, he mongaronga ki te whenua, he whakaro pai ki ngā tangata katoa. Amine. Okay. Uh, lovely to have everyone here this afternoon to talk about the church coming out. Now, um, do you know how these days you have those gender reveal um, parties all the time? So I thought maybe this could be a denominational reveal party. Um, the budget, unfortunately, the best church didn't have the, the, you know, the, the poppers that do the sparkles, whatever happens. So unfortunately, it's, it's not possible this afternoon. Uh, can everybody hear me? I'm happy to use the microphone if it's helpful. Yes? Um, just a couple of acknowledgements. Uh, we are in the season of Lent. Uh, which is obviously a time of sacrifice and giving up and, you know, sackcloth and ashes and all that. Um, and there's also lots of rainbows and fabulous and innocent around the room, and they can interlink and interrelate. I know they can. Uh, I also want to um, mention as I start the, um, the, the, the prophet, um, who many of you will know, um, you know, the, he's, st- he's still living uh, today, uh, Eddie Izzard. Uh, a great man of, of, the, of the faith and of the church. And as we, as we start this afternoon's session, I want to reflect on, on his prophetic words he said several years ago. And that's to be brave and curious, not fearful and suspicious. And I think for too long, the church uh, has been fearful and suspicious and has created that space because it's a place of... Um, Protection and a place of control, because when you create suspicion and fear, that's when you obviously are able to um, control the masses, and none of these people do that, but I'll just sort of bring that up. So if you ever want to read um, any of the readings of, of Eddie Azad, he's always, a, he's always a good read. Be brave and curious, not fearful and suspicious. Now we've got an amazing group of panellists for the next three hours who are going to be presenting for us. Um, It'll probably take at least that long to un- unpack it, right? So you're in for a long, a long, a long time, not a good time. Hopefully, a good time as well. Let's squeeze it in. Anyway, focus, Glenn. Focus. My name's Glenn. Um, I am hosting. I'm from Taranaki. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, and I, my side hustle is I'm actually a member of Parliament for New Plymouth. That's just my side hustle. My main hustle is this kind of stuff and building community uh, and building inclusive um, people, faith, churches, whatever they are. I'm going to introduce our panellists, but I'm going to do it in a slightly different way, and hopefully you feel comfortable with that. Um, I don't know if you know strip poker. Um, it's nothing like that. So I'm going to ask our panellists just to stand up, um, stand up where they are, please. Just take a, take a stand, not a seat. And I'm going to ask them a really quick question, then they're going to introduce themselves, because often we have bios and we say stuff, and some of it's true, some of it's inflammatory, but it's okay. What I'm going to ask you the question this afternoon, now I know that some of you... Um, are part of denominations, some of you are part of churches or um, faith organisations. My question to you, and I want you to be really honest, um, this is a safe space, right? We're here to kind of share and understand each other. Um, But it is helpful to have a bit of reflection this afternoon. So when we talk about uh, the church coming out, uh, I really want you to take a moment to think about your denomination or your expression of faith that you're part of currently. And where do you think that group of people sits right now? And then I'm going to ask you to go and stand somewhere in the room, and I'm going to ask then ask an interview you really quickly. So, if currently your denomination or faith group uh, is not affirming, is closed, you'll stand as close to that wall as possible. 
if you're 100% inclusive in terms of uh, the expression of, of the organisation you're part of is fully inclusive, you'll stand at that space. Or somewhere along the continuum. So just really quickly, take a moment, just a five of you, to find where do you think you stand as part of who you represent today on this, on this continuum of, of inclusion when it comes to LGBTIQ plus spaces. Just to out them straight away, sorry about that. <laughs> There's no wrong answer, by the way. I'm sticking with these guys, but a little bit behind. Okay, I'm just going to do cross technical stuff. Amazing. Okay, so really quickly, just to see who you are, who you're part of, and then just a sense of around why you're saying what you're saying. afternoon is lean in. Uh, so a big, part of, uh, a big part of conversations we often have is that when someone says something that you don't believe in or something that you're uh, challenged by, uh, often you lean out and, and you, you, your participation wanes. What I'm going to ask you to do this, this afternoon, panellists and those in the audience, is, is to lean in and to be curious. So we're going to have a pretty open conversation as the afternoon goes on uh, and 
And I want you to ask curious questions. And then your panellists, you can also ask curious questions back or to each other in terms of that. Um, so rather than demanding an answer or wanting to know their stance on, on however many spiritual laws there are, I've forgotten right about now, but it's actually just around being curious to understand where everyone is and how we can actually move forward. Whether we need to move forward at all, right? But hopefully we do. Yeah. Um, so, I really want to start with you, Michael, because um, you were the furthest up this way. Um, that doesn't just come overnight, you sort of change the doctrine or your, your stance on something or you put a rainbow flag in the auditorium. How do you think you got there as a congregation? <sighs> yeah, it's, um, that was not an immediate thing. Um, I think we've had a kind of a slightly unusual journey in some respects. Um, I've been I'm one of the co-leaders of the church for the last two, three, three years. Um, prior to that, I think there had been a, a stance of um, sort of vague affirming for a, for quite some, for a number of years that had come about, I think, just through an evolution of, of theology over time. Um, I think what we realised over the last three or four years and started having much more robust conversations about is that kind of vaguely affirming wasn't um, necessarily helpful in the long run uh, for anybody. And so I said about seeing a series of conversations that could take us from sort of affirming in practice, affirming in a way that we included, treated people and gave them full participation in the community, but moving from there through to actually being able to talk about that, um, process that with people, um, take them on the, the theological journey as, as well as um, the journey of practice. Does that make sense? It's a start. Okay. So I'm going to have Ian and Megan who are in the cities. And I've seen some frustration, I might be wrong, but there was a little bit of um, frustration in the places we had to stand. Can you just comment on that when we are uh, in terms of the organisations we represent, in terms of the challenge to get to be open and affirming, if even that's the place you want to get to? Who wants to start? Megan and Ian. The difficulty for me is uh, if I am representing myself, I am somewhere else on the spectrum. But when I am a part of a wider denomination, uh, it can feel like you're pushing against the stream. Uh, and most of you will know we were pushing forward for a motion to it started out to bless marriages, then it got bless same-gender relationships, and we fought and fought and fought, and lost, I don't get invited many places anymore, but I wouldn't like to go there now anyway, um, and we fractured, um, and we tore ourselves up in the past. And then we kind of felt good about ourselves because we'd done this a little bit. I'm saying it's a Christchurch people, I'm saying it's a 3.8 to a 4.2. I'm saying it's scores more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that it's about 8 kilometres deep. Christchurch people? Yeah. We have to lose a few months all the way. The building is also 120% of the code. Yeah. We lost our 
Um, my frustration is we did something that wasn't enough but was the beginning. And then we sat back. And I grieve for that. And so that's my frustration of why I got myself back there. Because what I do isn't as important as what the whole church needs to do. Yeah. So look at the journey of the Salvation Army can't be talked about without acknowledging some of our significant errors in the past uh, around the, uh, the LGBTIQA plus community. Um, I think many of you would be aware that in the mid-1980s, the Salvation Army helped organise uh, a petition against the Homosexual Law Reform Bill. Um, and uh, if, you, if you actually want to understand a little bit more about that journey, I can point you in the direction of some literature that traces why that happened, how that happened, uh, and the role of individuals in, in pushing that through. Because here's the thing about the Salvation Army. It is a highly hierarchical, highly centralised organisation. Um, ecclesiologically, we're, 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 we're quite top-down, uh, and individuals can have a pretty major impact on things that don't have widespread agreement from our membership. Um, and I say that not to excuse. I say that to own the fact <coughs> that this is part of our history. Now, internationally, the Salvation Army is a relatively conservative body. Um, New Zealand is, in fact, regarded as a, a liberal outlier that occasionally needs to be brought back into line. Um, the fact is that three years ago, we also issued uh, guidelines for salvationists uh, that said we will not and oppose the use of conversion practices. Um, and we did it just before the government announced the legislation. But we released them just after the government released the legislation. I was really annoyed about that because it made it look like we were just doing what the government wanted. Uh, <laughs> We are on a significant journey um, as a people that is taking us far too long. Uh, now, I, I, I sit in that awkward place a little bit like you, that I, rep I actually represent the organisation. I'm part of the senior leadership of the Salvation Army in New Zealand, Fiji, Tonga and Samoa. Um, but I'm also a human being. And there are times when I speak with the voice of the organisation uh, where we talk about the fact that we are internationally seeking to engage in conversation about how we include those who felt excluded. But we continue to do so within some of the constraints that we have organisationally in, uh, around this kind of uh, topic, um, where, where there's a tension between what we say about what it means to be a member of the Salvation Army and what we would want the Salvation Army to be to be doing in terms of uh, making a place for what the, the term we use is a place for the whosoever um, and that, that journey is imperfect uh, it's uh, long suffering and at times uh, we, we've made some significant missteps as a, as a movement um, but we are genuinely seeking to engage in in meaningful conversations about how we move forward 
even though we know that within our own movement there are those who are fully affirming and there are those who hold to a very conservative theology of sexuality. Uh, that's a place of tension, eh? Um, what I would want to say as an individual is very different from what I'd want to say as a representative of the Salvation Army. We are committed to the dialogue. We are committed to moving forward. Um, it's sometimes frustrating for ourselves. I know it must be frustrating and hurtful to those who are part of the LGBT community. Um, so, thank you. David and Craig, you've heard uh, a nimble, small church able to, to move and, and, and change and be open. You've then heard reflections of some of these bigger denominations and are they excuses? I don't know. Are they, um, you know, are they sort of frustrations? Absolutely, yes. Um, what's your reflection in terms of you were, you were sort of sitting more in the middle? I know you kind of come out of spaces which is denominational but also in terms of power movements. Um, should... Every church and denomination come out and be open and affirming, or is it a process? Uh, are we these excuses we're hearing, or do you see a day when we can actually be a fully inclusive church uh, around Aotearoa and the world? Just a small question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, look, I agree with all churches being inclusive, and I really think the ones that won't be will tend to die out. Although there will probably be a conservative element that will have some money and some power. I see some young people still being in churches, even where they're not gender inclusive. And I, I just don't understand how they can do it, but they're there. So we're growing new conservative, small amounts, but it's a small generation like that. Um, I was, used to be an optimist. I used to think change would come soon. I'm much less optimistic now because I haven't seen much change in the last 10 years. Um, and I think sometimes we miss opportunities. Uh, I was in a Pentecostal church, a minister in an apostolic church. Um, since we left, they, and with the legalisation of same-sex marriages, they added an extra belief statement saying that marriage is only between male and female. So they entrenched their position. Um, we're in an Anglican church now. The minister was open and affirming, and she was pushing to bless same-sex relationships. I pushed her on that. She chose, she could print it out, but she chose to do a whole building project and prioritise that rather than a change that might unsettle people. And she's just about finished the whole project, she's retired. So we've got an interim minister, and we've talked to him, and he is definitely conservative. Uh, so we're taking a sabbatical from that church to listen to him preach. Um, and we'll see what the new minister is like. But the church missed an opportunity, she missed an opportunity to put in place something that would have been good for the community. Might have stopped the interim minister coming along if he knew what sort of church it was. It might have set the process in place for the next minister that we would have got an inclusive minister. But now we've got more conservative people in the church making the choice and uh, who knows where the church will be. So I think we can't afford to miss opportunities and we've got to take the risk of, of losing people. You know, we'd lose people if they were racist, we'd lose people if they were slave traders. Let's be willing to lose people if they're conservative on this. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, so interesting, I read a study that was released this week from an American research group that was said something like 79% of people are not willing to go into a church because of the LGBT way they don't accept. Um, 
but that's not you. In 2016, I think it was, the Wilberforce Trust here in New Zealand, the one called Faith and Belief, same, same adults, you know. Um, that, they also said that New Zealand is no longer a, um, a no, New Zealand is no longer a Christian nation, which I thought was really interesting. Um, they're about to do that study again, but they're going to ask the same questions, and they're pretty sure they get the same answers. So, for me, um, the church has to do this. The, the, it's going to be in such a decline, there will be no church in 30, 40 years' time, um, because the conservatives will die off, and the younger people will say, well, we're just not interested, you know. Um, but I suppose the good news um, is that, so I, I sit in a, a group called um, Diverse Church, and one of the things that we do is we get um, emails or correspondence from churches who want to do the journey, want to start coming out, right? And, and we're getting a few of them, you know, we've had um, a Baptist church, we've had um, a, a couple of Anglican churches that say, how can we do this, and, and, and how can we do this in the limitations of our diocese or of our governing body. So there are churches out there that are willing to start taking the journey, um, and I suppose so I get to see the, the, some of the plus side um, of it, but there is some pretty, I'll just say nasty, I think, mechanics happening right down and deep where um, there's this old hierarchical structure um, so ingrained and, and like locked into our government, into our politics, it just isn't wanting to move, and it's really icky. Um, and I think until we get some significant leaders, and I, I, I said this at the couple of waking conferences ago, I said I really want to empower our people to stay in the church because it's, that's the only way that change is going to happen. Um, you know, we have to become the bishops, we have to become the priests in order to force that change. We're not going to be able to do it from outside because they're not willing to move. Um, yeah. So, my question before I throw it out to the floor to continue this conversation is what has been Christianity's obsession with sex? What has been Christianity's obsession with what I choose to do with my body? What has been the church's obsession uh, in terms of that morality space? Uh, So, in terms of who I am, uh, I am a a gay cis male. Uh, In fact, my connection to this piece of whenua uh, goes back to the mid-1980s uh, when homosexual law reform was actually in process. And as a young, as a young person at the Salvation Army across the road, um, you know, I, I saw the... Well, it wasn't across the road at that time, but saw the, uh, the protests and the, the, as, as, a, as a nine-year-old, you know, trying to figure out who I was and seeing um, the hate as I went into a church that preached love uh, and then connection to this building here, we used to have youth group suppers with share across the road, um, and that member being really afraid because, you know, sexual immorality, you know, homosexuality was, I was going to hell and I was going there pretty quickly. My question is, why the obsession? And I'm just throwing that out to whoever wants to start answering it, and you can speak loudly without the microphones. And short answers if you can, please. <laughs> so I think there's good arguments that it comes from the States in the 70s when they lost the battle for segregation in their uh, theological schools and and Christian colleges and so they had to choose they found convenient abortion and homosexuality becoming the two battlefronts to unite on common enemy battlefront. I I think it wasn't there before that, it came in then. Others? I think um, 
Christianity is founded on the us and the them, the sinners and the non-sinners, right? Um, and so there's always got to be, if I'm saved, there's always got to be a group that are not saved. And so um, they've just put people like queer people into that bucket, and that's where it's kind of originated from, um, which seems really backwards, but, yeah. I wonder if uh, Christianity's always been obsessed with sex, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if part of it is is you look at churches, individual churches or denominations, and a lot of them tend to lean into sort of orthodoxy—the idea that what you believe is the marker of whether you're in or out—and and what you believe around sex is a distinct marker of of whether you're in or out. Um, some churches lean into orthopraxis, which is, you know, what you, it's right action. What you do is the marker of whether you're in or out. And, and I think in both cases that can become quite harsh. And in both cases that's about power. It, it's about having the power to decide who's in, who's out. And that the, there is a missing, you know, you know, faith does involve belief. It does involve action, but surely it, it's... It's the willingness to engage, to love, to listen, to make space for one another that helps bring those things together in a healthy way. Without that, all you're left with is, I will take power over you. I'd even say it's back to the kind of Greek thinking coming in of separating the body and the mind. You know, everything of the head was good. Everything of the body was first, irrelevant, second, of the earth, dirt. So we exalted the thinking and we said the body was bad or irrelevant. And then, of course, that was really convenient, especially for women at that time. Mm. You know, don't you don't you worry your pretty little head about it. Here's a scone recipe. You know, um, <laughs> but that kind of demeaning uh, of the head space and, or the elation of the head over the body and not seeing us as a holistic organism that is beautifully made in all bits, which is why people go, well, just don't have sex, and then you can come to church, and doesn't see that your identity affects how you have friendships, how you love in so many different ways. Um, maybe there's a couple of things to add to all of that, which I agree with. Um, one is some of the, the church fathers had some pretty messed up conceptions of sex, and they got very deeply ingrained within the tr- Christian tradition. I think of Augustine, who I think... Sorry if you're an Augustine fan, but um, his own past, I think, had a big impact on the way in which he talked about sex and his theology, and I think we're still reaping the consequences of that in the West in particular. Um, And then I think the language of purity is very binary. Mm -hmm. Things can't be sort of pure or partly, you know, it's, it's by nature very black and white binary language, and it's been used primarily in the language, in the discourse around sex and sexuality and so I think it's it's created um, an env- a conversation and environment and a set of practices which just have no room for nuance at all. The language of purity is used to um, terrify people from becoming impure mm-hmm. and that loads so much onto this conversation that gets hard to unpick. I've always been really curious how the church and our church fathers yeah, we're so obsessed with sex and not so much about relationship. And that's something I've had to learn as an adult in, in, in a relationship and getting married. It was actually, we never, there was never that conversation. It was just that, that morality thing. So just side, side, line, side line. 
I'm going to throw it out to you uh, to ask some questions. Uh, they're prepared, they're ready to go. Um, they, they have broad shoulders and teams of experts behind them, so they're not afraid. <laughs> but I want you to do is again, as I said at the start, to be really curious. Maybe there's something you want to unpack with one of the, one of the panellists in particular, or maybe it's just a general question you have around, you know, what does it look like for us uh, to come out as churches, to be open, to be affirming, or even is that something we need to be doing? So, Peter Lynham. Yeah, I'm just a bit grumpy because Good. I feel as though the place of our church is not represented. That's in the Baptists. You, you're you a sticky, stand up on the you're sticky, Yes, you're, you're in a sticky position because the churches are allegedly independent, but the property is owned by the Baptist Union Trust. And so when Ponsonby Baptist became fully affirming, the, the denomination sought to take steps to expel us. And I mean, in the 2013 assembly of the church, this was a, a, a really critical moment. And they were preparing, and they got the resolutions with 90% passing that gave them a basis to effectively to expel us from our buildings. But we went and got legal advice that they were in breach of the Act of Parliament on which the Baptist Union had been created, which said you could only have doctrinal bases. You couldn't add in extra motions. And so we had to hang in by the skin of our teeth. And the <coughs> price is that our pastor, Jody, has no essentially no chance of ever being a minister in another church. Really, that's the price. For us, that's fine, we're here. Uh, and affirming has been tremendously beneficial and has attracted people to us. But for her, it's a very high price. Because in Baptist churches, effectively the ordination arises from the local place. And by the way, I'm also an Anglican, so I understand the other side. But, um, but uh, so the, the, the recognition of ministry, she has actually retained it, mostly because they're scared to take steps, uh, because they know that we will react. Um, but she was registered before that became the issue. Mm. Sorry, I don't want to go on. Yeah, no, so the church, as we can see, in terms of the LGBTIQ plus A community, um, we're diverse and there's lots of ideas and opinions and lots of politics in it, as is the church and denominations, within their own dominant denominations, but also within the wider the church itself. So I, I hear you, Peter, thank you. Any other curious questions we can start, carry on with? No, I want to make a statement. <laughs> um, disguise as a question? I want to disguise as a question. I'm the idea. I think it's just evil. Um, I think in the same way as we called out conversion practices as torture, we need to call out this kind of theological stance as evil. Mm. It is about principalities and powers. It is not about the kingdom of God. And the church mm. can be as corrupted by principalities and powers as any individual. And the main reason I think it's evil is because of that statistic that you quoted. Mm. It's a stumbling block for people having to experience faith and God. The church is the main stumbling block for most New Zealanders in coming to experience faith and God. Not just queer people, but straight people as well find it an abomination. And I just think that the fact that not having a supportive church will increase 
the risk of suicide and suicide ideation by 40%, yeah. it's actually killing people. Mm. If that's not people, I don't know what it is. Mm. Yeah. Comments, panelists? I study trauma. And I'm doing a thesis on trauma and faith communities at the moment. And when we were looking at the um, whether or not we went ahead with motion 27 stroke 29, parishes were told to meet with other parishes. And they did some amazing videos and we discussed it. Right? We had such an appalling experience with, our para with the parish we went to where suddenly bestiality was on the table and we all thought, where the hell did that come from? And unholy thoughts. Um, and I took my group afterwards. The only place that was open was McDonald's Cafe late at night. But the most miraculous thing happened in that um, one of our 97-year-olds pulled open her wallet and pulled out and said, this is my granddaughter. I've never showed you the photo of her before, and this is her wife. Then the 82-year-old who didn't know her, sitting next to her, pulled out hers and said, this is my granddaughter who was my grandson. And they had this, this amazing moment happened when they had found a safe enough space in faith in McDonald's to... Because they couldn't in church. Because they couldn't where we'd been before, yes. To go, I'm so proud of my grandchild, have a look. And... And that was a huge turning moment for us because we were the church that took it forward in Christchurch to do the um, to put the motion forward. Um, and that said to me last week at this trauma conference, they said the biggest crisis in the world isn't global. It isn't about gender. It isn't about this or that or that. It is that we are in a crisis of a lack of empathy and compassion. Yeah. And for me, that was a crisis of compassion and understanding the true gospel message. Yeah. And uh, that sits with me when you speak. Yeah. So it's been flipped back here saying that, uh, you know, the abomination was me, and now you're saying the abomination is the church. So how do we respond to that, church leaders? Potentially, yes. We have to be honest mm. and go, are we loving people or are we harming people? I think part of, part of what's at stake there is what is the church? Um, if, if the church is our structures, we are lost. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking back to, uh, I, I had the privilege of facilitating a conversation with people from the Salvation Army from all over the world um, at a conference last year. And we were discussing uh, what it meant to include the excluded. Uh, and, and there were people who started that conversation by literally saying, actually saying, I think maybe God does want to exclude some people. Um, and uh, we got to a point at the end of that conversation where someone was able to say, I want to thank the people in this room because I feel like you would want my gay daughter, my lesbian daughter, to feel safe within the church. Um, and the thing that made the difference was that people had begun the conversation with principles and structures in mind. And over the course of that conversation, they've begun to see people. Now, that's possibly simplistic, um, but, but the church as, as a structure has always been a stumbling block, always. You know, Christendom was a disaster because the church got actual power. Um, 
when we mistake structures and principles as, as the, the point of it, rather than seeing people and seeing them as made in the image of God and children of the Most High, I, when, when we can make that transition, it begins to transform things. How many, how many people have you heard who, whose journey around becoming affirming has started because someone in their family came out? You know, or because they knew, they they'd always thought I don't know anyone gay, and then they'd realised they you know people uh, and love in place of structures and principles. You're right; it is an evil when when we when we idolise that. Yeah. yeah, the McCrindle report said three things that were belief blockers: so same-sex relationships, hell, and the problem of evil. And they are three things that can be addressed really well theologically and in a way that turns them from being a stumbling block to actually being something really good mm. about the gospel. And I think we need to address all three at a theological level as well as in a practical level. Can you just repeat that again? Yeah. And then what the start of it was? The yeah, so the McCrindle Report, yeah, the Faith in New Zealand Report, highlighted three belief blockers. These are statements, things that people say stop them having faith. And they were same-sex relationships, the church's attitude to same-sex relationships, the problem of hell, and the fact that Christians, some Christians, push an eternal hell, and the um, the problem of evil. Why a good God would let evil happen in the world? They can all. There's really good answers to all three theologically. And also, true women in the church. Yes, there, there were the other three aspects too that people take, especially women in the okay, church. We're going to come over here, then we'll head over there. More of what it has to do with Antipas, more than anything else, but I'm sure it was Amanda. First of all, on the panel, Megan. 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 You mentioned <coughs> motion, I think you mentioned pretty soon, pretty low. Yeah. Right. What? Oh, sorry. Was, was in an Anglican context. Yeah. Oh, that yeah, was to uh, create some kind of way that we could bless same-sex or same-gendered relationships and uh, through a complex system of approvals, which I'm sorry, but that's what it was, um, allow parishes where that was not theologically something that they could do to not have to do them. uh, And if I wanted to do it in my church to have the approval of my wardens, my vestry, before I could do that. Oh, and that, that motion is that from Lambeth? No. Um, Peter, you would know. Only General Sonnen. Yeah. Yes, we did this several years ago. Mm. Uh, so Lambeth has just recently... No, no that's been. not even Lambeth. That's no, England. sorry, England. England. Sorry, yeah. yeah. So some of the major denominations of going through processes, or have, as Peter has alluded to, yeah. Megan's alluded to, um, I guess Ian in, in some ways in a different way has alluded to. I'm going to come over here to, to a curious question and some nice short to the point answers. And my question was thinking questions. I've heard a lot of frustration, and I'm keen to hear some, some um, practical steps and tips about um, how you can get to a firm position. Maybe from learnings from all the things that haven't worked out, even though I know there's some Um, and I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure what we mean 
guess it, it's different depending on the context, right? So you can, we can already hear the, the different context wrestling with how this takes take shape differently depending on the boundaries, guidelines, processes, structures, hierarchies, all of that stuff. I think what I can say for us at like a local, like as a, as a congregation of people, is that we went through a process over a period of time, which included conversations with um, leadership, it included assigning reading, having follow-up conversations, then expanding that conversation to, to a wider leadership community in the church, following up with conversations, identifying you know, where there are questions, um, and then flowing that out into the, into the church conversation. And so for us, it was a, it was a series of conversations trying to prepare the ground in a way rather than just getting up one Sunday and um, saying, guess what, everybody? Um, Raise the flag. Yeah. <laughs> and so we tried to do that as a way of bringing as many people along that But Michael, you possible. didn't pay a price. Oh, yes. Yes, sure. And what did it look like at the end of the process? What did it look like? Yeah, I mean, I think we're still in the... Um, yeah, I don't want to hold us up as a, as a model... <laughs> In that sense, but I, you know, I, we're still in the process of what that looks like for us. I think it's an ongoing thing. I think it culminated in like a um, a series of Sunday talks that that named clearly um, who we were and what we were about and what we believed. Jess and Trish over there can probably talk about it. They're in the church. Um, Maybe can offer some drink of what that looks like as someone who came to Ish two years ago. <laughs> Being able to fully just be myself in that space, and that's that's what it looks like now. And being able to be openly in a relationship with a woman and be celebrated for our engagement, and that's what it looks like at the end of the process for the journey. So I do have a question about that because, as you were standing over here, because we're very kind of affirming church, and I'm part of the church that are still in the closet with the door open down the other end, right? And so. My thinking is, as you were journeying on that continuum of moving towards that place, was there a time where the church, as a body of faithful people, go, actually, we need to have some repentance and ask for forgiveness in that space? Like, did you grapple with what that meant as a faith community together as you journey that spectrum? It's a great question. <laughs> Um, probably not enough. Yeah, I, th- I think that's I think that's fair to say. Yeah, it's maybe a conversation offline as well, so yes. to keep this conversation going. So I want to come to unless you've got another. Um, Ian, I want to just throw in the Salvation Army into this. <laughs> um, you were, yeah, closet doors open, but but you ain't coming quite coming out yet. Um, but you have done some things since 1986. Um, I remember as a good little Salvation Army boy, I used to go knocking on doors and collecting money for the Salvation Army and would get slammed in my face regularly because of what we did to the, to the homosexual community, and rightly so. Um, there's been processes along the way, though. There's an apology, I think it was 2008, that was made. Still get the door slammed in my face sometimes when I was, you know, still a good Salvation Army boy. Um, I'll, t- I'll tolerate anything, but inaccuracy, it was 2006. 2006, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the weeds. Um, but then obviously there's been progression in terms of, you talked about the conversion practices and, and some policy work around that. Um, what is that, that journey for the Salvation Army, in terms of what we're saying right now, in terms of taking the community with you? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and part of what we wrestle with is the temptation to continue um, m- making decisions on behalf of others. Mm. Uh, when, when you're hierarchical, uh, you, you often start to feel that the, the view from the corner office is the right view. Uh, and um, look, internationally, we are having discussions. Our International Theological Council is talking. They've released resources that can be used at a local level so that people can have conversations where the goal isn't to change anyone's mind, it's to hear each other and to find a way to develop relationship even in the face of difference. You know, there's stuff that's being done. Um, Part of what I think is sometimes lacking is allowing people to own those conversations at a more local level. We're not actually really good at that. Um, we're, we're much better at, at making decisions for people. Uh, and I say that with some shame. Um, we, we've, we know we've got a lot of wrestling to do, um, but I think more and more of that wrestling has to be about people at a local level discovering who each other is. Fine. Oh, sorry. For some sake. I'll just sit down. Um, <laughs> so I'm also a part of the I worked with a, a church up in Auckland just recently who um, wanted to go down this journey and wanted to go down it, but they were, you know, they're having it at elder level, a bunch of white straight men, um, and and the first thing I said to them is, "Have you got queer people in your church?" Um, and they said, "Yeah, we think we've got a couple." And I said, "Well, um, ask them if they want to be a part of and 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 other." people of um, different minority groups because that's the other cool thing, other minority groups often share the same thinking around around this um, and see if you can set up a, a group that is going to help guide you on this and bring them into the table, so that's the first thing when when, when we go in, we say actually it's you need to get your own community involved um, and and then, and then use them as your uh, like a government word, senior advisors, right? Um, and let them guide you, and you run everything through them. Um, and that and that seems to be has, has seemed to work. So they've now this church has now set up a um, like like a like a, a lot of corporate organisations do this have a DNI, you know, group, um, a diversity and inclusion group, you know. And it's just let's get churches to do the same thing, you know, set up these diversity and inclusion groups. The problem with churches, though. Um, the Anglican Church in Wellington, for example, has just set up one, um, but they've picked, handpicked people who they who they know will follow the follow the, the, the message, you know, and they've shut off people who have got a 
who have got a you know a different message and are not comfortable where they're sitting. Um, so yeah, you've got to be really careful about that. You know, the practical steps we could be taking as church leaders or churches to ensure that our Ramafano are supported but also are part of the conversation. For me, it's more safe spaces, and it's not asking anyone to go anywhere other than just be where they are and see what arises for them. Um, and to try not to fall asleep and there is a sense of there are lots of issues in the church there are always going to be lots of issues in the church and it doesn't matter if I have anyone from the community in the church or not the fact is I should be preparing the ground for that always anyway I'm going to come to Ian then I'm going to come over to you next yeah, I think that the example that Jesus shows us is, is one of giving away power to diffuse to diffuse money and to diffuse service and to to um, yeah to change the, the people who were wealthy stop taking more than they refused and they started to be generous in the opposite way. So I think that's a model for churches to recognise that their certainty is a power, their position is a power, their size is a power, and that this transition for churches is about how do we as quickly as possible bless others with that power. Nice comment. Thanks, Over here. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, my name is Chris, and I'm a member of Metropolitan Community Church. I've been attending that and, and similar churches since 1975. Um, my question is for one of your panelists. It's uh, Michael Frost. Uh, I wasn't clear in your introduction um, what your organisation is and, and what uh, your organisation stands for. Uh, so I'm part of, a, I help to lead a church called Edge Kingsland. Which is Edge Kingsland. Edge Kingsland, yes. That's church in Auckland. Yeah. So that's the Eternity Church in New York Road? Uh, we meet in the St Luke's Anglican building in the um, Sunday afternoon. Yes. And thank you for the commercial break. We're going to move over here. <laughs> 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 I've been the tensions that happen both within the church and particularly with LGBTQ people who are part of that church, often who feel constrained to stay because they feel they're in a conversation um, that they can have an impact on while at the same time really feeling the hurt that comes with knowing that they're not affirmed. Along with that, there's also the recent research that we know, those of you who have followed Kathy Baldock's unraveling of 1946, mm. and we know that as a part of that, one of the things that has been the, quite clearly determined is the decision to put the word homosexual into the RSV of 1946 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 is more an ideological decision rather than a theological decision. So when it comes to basically taking your denominations on a journey, how do you see the, being able to separate that perception of theology away from what is reality in terms of ideology? Comments? I think it's, I think it's um, Colin, it's very much a statement to reflect on. Um, unless anyone has an, has an answer, we can have a conversation after the session. I just think that many of the gatekeepers in churches have an assumed conservative position 
and haven't really thought about it. Mm. And they need to be gently or, or strongly challenged on their assumed views. Mm. But it takes time for all of us to change, so we've got to mm. accept that. And I, I also think every church, every church minister needs to know and see at least one person in the congregation that is either queer or queer affirming, mm. and they've got to know they're there, so they watch what they say and they watch what they do. And I know as a preacher, you're very aware of someone that might be disagreeing with you. Yeah. We, those people are needed in churches because mm. it keeps a level of honesty mm. in the church. Mm. Just, just picking up on that, oh sorry. Right, you go. Um, in 2014, the Salvation Army did a survey, as you'd be aware, Colin, mm -hmm. of attitudes towards um, homosexuality. Uh, and one of the things that came out of that um, was that a substantial proportion of people, regardless of where they landed on that, a substantial proportion of people did so without having done any serious study or any serious reading. They just, this is what they felt. Um, and I think one of the things we absolutely need to improve our, our performance on is providing resources for that discussion and so that people can actually have a conversation about why do Christians reach different conclusions? What is the ideological reading that sits over here? And what's the alternatives? You know, I, we actually need to resource that conversation because we're doing a really bad job at it. Well, as it comes to the question that was asked earlier around you know, practical things to do, Hugh. Yes, yeah, sorry, um, just as a clarification, number eight, we've been speaking up. Oh, jeez. I know, I'm terrible. Um, but also, as a student from uh, a college that um, has done a journey itself and still is journeying uh, and studying and things like that, uh, and to be honest with you, my statement is more about, I think it's the interpersonality and this whole coming out as church thing is actually, yes, it's knowing the individual, but it's breaking those conversations down from being a really big conversation to actually, if grandma does pull out the photograph, actually acknowledging it and growing it and introducing people. Because I think if the network is stronger, the actual movement, which happens regardless of the church structure, and I'm sorry, pastor sitting up the front there, but actually just, I think, this whole conversation, yes, it's great to have some affirming allies at the front, but actually it's irrelevant to the outcome if the church rises up and shows its leaders where it needs to be. And I think that's probably the conversation that I just want to throw back to you guys, to throw back to us, is what can we do? You guys can catch up. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Any comments? So, I've got one more quick question, and then I'm going to flip the whole conversation. Oh, actually, Andre, you go, and then I'll come to my question.
David, have you got any comment on that? Oh, only what I've seen in the Apostolic Church and with the marriage equality thing and the way they were really scared of what that might mean for them and the way they entrenched a, a belief. So, and I think churches, some, the Conservative churches are on the back foot with the conversion therapy uh, thing, so possibly not at the moment. I think they will just hunker down. And, and I'm, I'm not sure it's the time in New Zealand to be clarifying whether churches are inclusive or not. I know in the States there's a website and a lot of churches are listed on there where they are in terms of um, same-sex relationships and where they are in terms of gender equality as well. And it's kind of a, a scale from naught to five. I don't think we're ready for that in New Zealand yet because I don't think we have enough of a groundswell of affirming churches. You know, we've got to get more over the line to then be visible enough to give people options to then go, now we want the clarity. But I personally don't think we're ready for that clarity yet. Having said that, I think churches should be clear. And I'm frustrated that so many churches aren't. And churches are working to have welcoming youth groups while the church might not be inclusive. And I'm scared of that space. Can I add something to that as well? I think um, this is a great conversation. Um, I would love to see, even though there are not a lot of affirming churches in, in the broader sense of things, one of the things working in the online space and podcasting Tell us more. is, uh, <laughs> you know, I started the book, uh, <laughs> is... How many people, are, I, I feel like there is, there is more of a groundswell than there appears to be. Um, but it is at the grassroots, and in fact it's all the way through. So I hear from Bible college lecturers who are secretly affirming but don't want to say. I hear from their students who are secretly affirming but don't want to say it to their lecturer. I hear from the pastors who are secretly affirming don't want to say it to their congregations. And the congregation members who are secretly affirming don't want to say it to their pastors. And if we could somehow uh, foster and stimulate the courage... Uh, for those voices to begin to come to the surface, I think what we would, I think what we could see, um, and it might not be all the people with the money, but there, there might be a domino effect in terms of people finding. Um, you know, one of the big biggest things I hear all the time is, "I thought I was the only one processing this, and now I realise I'm not." And I think if we can amplify that part of the conversation, then that starts to create the groundswell from the bottom up that might actually contribute to change. I hope. So the question I have, which follows on from that, is, is we look at slavery, we look at um, corporal punishment, we look at women leadership, we look at, um, I guess, empire in terms of, of the way that church has gotten behind empire in, in, in terms of repressing and oppressing indigenous people. Um, then we look at the, this space, we look at the climate space, it often feels like we're, we're always running behind, we're always playing catch up. People don't come out. Uh, so my question, really quick fire to all of you, is... What are we afraid of? What's the worst that will happen if churches become affirming? All of you. <laughs> the Conservatives with their money leave and go yeah. to non-affirming churches. Okay, carry on. That's it. That's, I mean, that's that and somehow offending God, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah lo- loss, of, loss of money, loss of job for yeah. those pastors that are in the roles, yeah. So my next question is... What would happen if we did become affirming churches? What are the most amazing things could happen if we actually all became affirming churches? What would that do for our churches and our communities? Go. Well, I think we start to see some of that 79% of yeah. people who, who aren't going to walk through the door at the moment. I, I think um, you'd see suicide rates and mental health um, things. Right. 
I think you'd see the wider community go, what took them so long? And, um, and a new sense of the spirit working through the church. I think you would see what was talked about last night, that the gift of queer voices to the church would transform it into something more beautiful. Mm. Yeah. And I think you'd see the freedom to start to other justice issues as well. Mm. Jeez, let's stand up. Everyone stand up, please. Stand up. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen. It wasn't really my plan, but um, we're going to flip the conversation around now. And what I'm going to ask you all to do is, we did the human continuum thing before with our panellists. We're going to ask you now. Um, so that end of the room, um, so you may be part of a church, you may be part of a faith community, you may not, that's okay. Um, maybe it's a community you were part of, or if you want to loiter around the middle because you're not sure, please feel free to loiter in the middle. But I'm going to ask you is, the church or faith community or wherever you fit at the moment, uh, where do they stand in terms of around being an open and affirming church? So if it's completely closed, the closet door is closed over there, if the closet door is fully swung open and there's, you know, there's rainbows and, and <laughs> glitter flowing out that way, so all of you come down this way and stand where you think your denomination, your faith community, if you're not part of one, just stand in the middle and I think this can stay here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. What am I actually going to do? Oh, panelists, sorry. Do you pick a spot where you want to stand? I'm panelists. So, I'm going to get you going. We're going to have a conversation around what's going on. I'm going to ask you some questions about some kind of things. All right. So, listen up. Thank you very much. Thanks for playing my game. I can see some people falling asleep, so I've got to be getting moving. Okay, so what we're going to do, you've already started the process, is you're going to chat to people, introduce yourself really quickly, and where you're connected, where you're from, all that kind of thing. Beautiful. You're going to do that in about 10 seconds each. Then you're going to tell the people around you why you're standing where you're standing, and maybe where you'd like to have been standing. So these are going to be really short sentences. Now, I know our panellists waffle on and go on for hours. You're not. You're going to be nice and short and to the point with your, your little group. So find groups of three or four. Just really quickly, who you are if you haven't already introduced yourselves. And then why are you standing where you're standing? Where, you, where you'd like to be standing? Go.
Okay, listen up, listen up. We're going to start stopping from the conversations. What we're going to do now, we're going to continue the conversation, but what I'm going to do is, uh, that group can stay there, so your group of four can join this group there, please. Thank you. Yep, that's about right. What we're going to do is we're going to put all five panellists in a group. So, panellists, please find these five groups. One, two, that's quite big, that group, sorry. Can someone let me into that group? Thank you. So, five panellists, there's five groups. One, two, three, four, five. Occupy, go into a group, dominate as you do. You know, you choose leaders, that's how you roll. Okay, now listen up, sorry, I should have, before I stopped and ruined the conversation. So you've got, you've got five leaders of churches amongst you right now and, and the conversation was had around what are some practical and tangible things that can be done to move forward in our groups and churches and denominations and whatever faith you're a part of in terms of organisation. So for the next two or three minutes, a conversation where this church leader will be listening to you about what's one thing that you think could be done to ensure that we come out as churches that we come out as faith organisations. So really simple, tangible things. Please, really short, to the point, so you let other people actually have a go at speaking. So what's something you think could be done uh, to ensure that churches come out? Conversation goes.
seconds, 30 seconds. Pass it on. Okay, so sorry to shut you down, uh, but to stay where you are for one second, we're going to go through the group really quickly. I know that you're still talking, you're desperate to talk, because we love to talk. Um, as the lucky thing is we have afternoon tea coming up in a little while, there's dinner and there's lunch tomorrow, so you can continue the conversation, because a big part of Awakening, and this is around we, I guess, we foster and, and, and create some conversations, but they need to carry on from here. Um, for our church leaders, thank you for your time. What I'm actually going to do is... Answer a really quick feedback session, which is going to take all of 30 seconds. I know, I'm really optimistic. Uh, but I'm just going to sweep around the room. As I do, I'm going to ask one person in each group to come and get some papers off me, please. So the question I have is, what's one takeaway in one sentence or less from each group that you're going to take from here? So what's one little takeaway you've got from this afternoon? Just one person from the group, really short, really simple. This always be affirming. <laughs> Anything from this group? One takeaway? Down here? Take a risk. You hear that people? Expect to lose some money, yep. And lose some people along the way. And down here? Be visible and be a thorn on people's side. Be visible and be a thorn on someone's side. Now can I say as we're about to finish is that in 1985 and 1986, the biggest challenge in terms of homosexual law reform, um, or my little um, bed, bed, what do you call it? I don't think the word is. Hobby horse. Okay. Bear that one too. Um, is the reason we got it across the line, because think the mid 80s, we're still a super conservative nation, we still are, and we're in Christchurch, thank you very much. It's, yeah. No, not being Christchurch, I love you. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> no childhood trauma from here. It's, <laughs> Uh, that one of the big campaigns of the of the the vote for homosexual reform was that that people had to come out. Literally, men and women around New Zealand had to actually come out in their workplaces, in their families, in their churches to get homosexual law reform across the line, and we did. And what I've heard this afternoon, my takeaway is very much that we need to come out. And I'm not talking about us queers, us queens. Um, I'm talking also about those church leaders who are in the room today and those who aren't. That you need to come out. If, you're, if you choose to be LGBTIQ+, that's awesome, not that you choose it, um, but it, yeah. finding your communities and people as allies to come out. Uh, because as churches, as church leaders, we need to ensure, as we said, people die. Yeah. People die because we don't. And we can talk all church politics we like, we can talk, talk all the historic stuff we like, but that doesn't stop people from dying. And so we need to do all we can, everything we can, to ensure that we live in a thriving, inclusive society, which is, I think, faith community is the place where it begins, where it should begin. We currently don't. That's my bugbear. Thank you very much. 
Um, there's some bits of paper, um, please share them around. Um, open with Kalakia, so I'm going to close with Kalakia. All you need to do is to read out the line in bold with gusto and affirmation and love and all that sort of thing. The Spirit of God hovered over the, word, over the water. And God said, come out. Our first parents faced their first consequences. And God said, go forth. All life sheltered in the ark. And God said, come out. The power of Babel was overturned. And God said, go forth. The people were captive in Egypt. And God said, come out. They reached the Jordan River. And God said, go forth. Ruth and Naomi were widowed by Moab. And God said, come out. Elijah hid in the cave on Hero. And God said, go forth. Jonah languished in the belly of the whale. And God said, come out. Amos heard the Lord as he tended his flock. And God said, go forth. And the word and God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And God said, come out. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And God said, go forth. And they said, today the word is fulfilled in your hearing. Good news to the poor, shackles broken for prisoners, eyes opened for those who don't see. Liberation for the oppressed. A jubilee time. They came to him, oppressed by demons. And Jesus said, He cleans lepers with a touch. And Jesus said, Go forth. Martha busied herself in the kitchen. And Jesus said, Come out. Men gathered to stone a woman. And Jesus said, Go forth. Lazarus languished in the tomb. And Jesus said, Come out. He gave his disciples authority. And Jesus said, Go forth. And Jesus said, Oh, sorry. The disciples hid after the crucifixion. And Jesus said, Come out. The risen Lord appeared to them. And Jesus said, Go forth. And come out. Kia ora, everybody.